It's episode five of the Improv London podcast with this week's guest, Jules Munns. This ain't gonna be easy. Welcome to episode five. Now, I haven't been back and counted, but I suspect that if you've listened to all the podcasts so far, you'll have heard the name Jules Munns maybe more than anybody else. So I thought it was any fair that we got him on to... uh, hear from the man himself. There's uh, lots of interesting things in this week's podcast. Uh, We discuss what the most disgusting sandwich Jules has eaten in the past month, uh, which is better, Del Close or Yoda. And we discover whether therapy and self-work are more or less fun than improv. Enjoy! Definitely here, present, Definitely ready to here. go. In the moment. Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, in the murder lift on the way up. <laughs> what did I say that I have to repeat? <laughs> you said you were reading a book about Scientology. Yes. Why Scientology? Um, because uh, uh, John Kramer and I share a sort of fascination with the absolute worst elements of human behaviour. <laughs> um, so he, he, he kind of buys books pretty much by the kilogram, as far as I can understand it, from um, from charity shops. And I always end up with the ones about... Um, I, don't, I don't quite know what he gives to other people. I always end up with the ones about humans just being totally awful. So um, <laughs> what's the name of that historian who wrote a book about D-Day and a book about um, Stalingrad? Um, Max Beaver or something like that. Yeah, something like yes. that. Um, and so he's he's. That's hard. a harder question than my other guests have asked me. As we said, you set the bar quite high with a hard question. Oh, I, I'm not going to be that sort of cerebral the whole way through. Um, but uh, yeah, so this this was uh, because Scientology is. I'm going to say it in public. Really fucked up. Um, <laughs> he just said to me in the start of rehearsal one time, "Oh, you already enjoy this. This is awful." <laughs> Um, so that's yeah, that's that's what I'm reading right now. Um, and th- there's a myth. I don't know if this is true. I can't remember where I heard it, but um, L. Ron Hubbard and Del Close, the sort of founder of um, the guy who created or codified the Herald, um, were at college together. And uh, L. Ron Hubbard was writing his pulpy science fiction, and Del Close said, "This is this is really great. You should make a religion out of it." So there's, I, I have no idea how true that is, and I'm sure no one could actually check because they're both dead now. <laughs> Yeah, Owen Hubbard's dead, isn't he? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> that means you can't see. Uh, but which, well, it means no one can check whether Del Close is responsible for Scientology as well as improv, because they do have similarities, right? <laughs> it has been discussed, um, even on this podcast, uh, the similarities between improv and occult. Yes. Occult, and... not occult. <laughs> well, I don't know, even that, actually, thinking about it, there is even similarities between those two. Well, there's yeah. even those lovely episodes of Bojack Horseman where... Um, uh, where they have the Scientology, no, the, the improv boat, which accumulates in a, in a mimed, mimed weapon battle, which is one of my favourite bits of improv piss take ever. I love the little uh, bit where the character gets offered an, uh, an imaginary drink, but you can't take it into the actual show. Actually, <laughs> I'd forgotten that. That's great. I, I did once. Um, I did once have such a... It played quite a long scene. I think it was in a rehearsal for Silly String Theory. I did once put a, a genuine mug of coffee down on a mimed table. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Shit. <laughs> but I was so sure it was there. I was so sure it was there. And as Mark Tindall pointed out at the time when I told him about it, 
Um, obviously, I should have been able to keep it sort of suspended in space with the force of the imagination. I, I wasn't able to do that. But, yeah, you could, no. but you're not that good. <laughs> so exactly. it's, um, it's about uh, 10 to 6 on a Wednesday. Right. And so in about an hour or so, you'll be teaching the making a scene drop-in. It's called making a scene now, Yes, it? making a scene drop-in, yeah, yeah. So what would you, if you weren't being recorded on a podcast, what would you normally be doing at this point in the evening? Um, probably lying on my back trying to not think about improv. Right, okay. I imagine <laughs> I, um, because uh, I think it's such a danger when the thing that you do for a job is also the thing that you really love. It's very difficult to keep an eye on your own sanity. Right. So I tend to, Judith and I, and then our, our creative assistants, um, Josh and Molly and David and Prabs, will be here for most of a working day during the day doing all the admin support stuff that the nursery requires. So I've had to be really disciplined to finish doing that at five or half five and take a proper break before the class happens because there's always more fun stuff to be doing. I'm, I'm um, programming the classes for 2016 and working out the, um, the show programming and communicating with some pretty cool teachers for Slapdash next October and all this really fun stuff. I don't really want to stop doing it, but I'm also well aware that if I don't take that little hour and a half or so break before teaching the class, then I will go mad. Around about nine o'clock, my brain would have turned into... Um, I saw this thing in Sainsbury's yesterday. Have you ever seen um, Marshmallow Spread? Uh, oh, it's called something... Fluff? Like fluff, yeah. Yes, I have seen that. <laughs> I have purchased it. Have you purchased it? Yes. What's uh, it like? It's uh, it's kind of amazing and awful at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I tell you about the most disgusting sandwich I've had this month? Yes, I, I please. Got, um, not disgu- <laughs> disgusting in a wonderful way. I got um, <laughs> one of those white baguettes that you get from every single supermarket, smooth peanut butter, and a, uh, and a, a chunky Kit Kat inside it. And that was a hell of a sandwich. Wow. So it's kind of like your your classic Nutella and, and peanut butter. <laughs> but I've, I've gamed it up to actually be using a whole chocolate bar instead of Nutella. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I love chocolate and I love baguettes. I've just never thought of combining the two well, in, in one. Uh, there you are, yeah. You can so. have that. I think I've decided to call it the L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> now, there's, there's got to be there's got to be a good pun on that, but I'm shit at puns. <laughs> I have also, in a previous episode, discussed my lack of ability to do puns, and uh, I don't I don't hate people that can. I do. No, I don't. Um, I, what I'd like to be able to do is I'd like to be able to think of puns and then not use them. <laughs> so like, I've, in my head, I'd go, yeah, I've got loads of stuff here, but I'm not going to use it. I can't be bothered. Yeah, no. I'm beyond that. <laughs> Whereas I just don't have it. <laughs> the Maydays actually had to to teach me to do wordplay because it's not something that I naturally come to at all. And at one point it got to um, got to the level that during one of our retreats, um, they pimped me into a scene where I had to do 12 puns on the legal system in order for the scene to be allowed to end. Ooh. Um, and of course, there's an audience full of improv- 60 improvisers three or four days into its retreat um, whose brains are not whacked up on adrenaline because they're on stage burning every single word that I was wanting to pun. Um, it was very, it, it felt like it lasted about 25 minutes. I'm sure it's only about three or four minutes. Um, but yeah, I, I think what's well, the thing is with wordplay is it's, um, it's sort of, it's not impossible, but it's very hard for it to be discovered. Hmm. Um, and because I discovering rather than creating things is naturally where I lie. I'm not a, not so much of a planner. I'm not so much of a, a preloader. Um, 
wordplay comes very, very difficultly. Comes, <laughs> it's hard for me to find, as I've just demonstrated. <laughs> um, which, which is, of course, such a big thing with musical improv that you're wanting to play around with the words and flip the rhyme, put the payoff mm. word second and stuff. That, to me, is really... Um, an artificial way to use my brain. I think it's great, and I love watching it. And the, you know, I work with some of the people in, who are the best in the country at doing that. And I, I have to tell you, it's very, very intimidating being in an improvised music rehearsal with um, Katie Shute, Rihanna Vivian, Heather Urquhart. Like, it's that's pretty terrifying. And when the accompanist is Joe Spaniel, you're like, how do I, how do I compete with this? I just, me and John, just trying to keep up and hoping that no one notices just how out of tune we are. <laughs> Yes, and you've certainly surrounded yourself with uh, excellent, uh, excellent players. There. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah, how did how did improv start for you? Um, so, uh, in two thousand and one, um, uh, we have a rule on the podcast: that if we're saying a date, we just commit to it. Okay, <laughs> we just commit to Fair it. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, in fourteen oh three, I saw a show at the National Theatre uh, called Life Game, um, which is a Keith Johnson format. Um, done by Improbable and it was Faye McDermott and Lee Simpson and uh, Stella Duffy and uh, a couple of the other players who I don't know and that that format they interview uh, a member of the audience a randomly selected member of the audience live on stage and then play out scenes from their life as they did happen as they didn't happen a couple of them with a sort of a, a short form filter over the top of them like the you know ding and a honk scene no. so um People on stage playing out a scene as as has been explained by the person who's being interviewed, and they have one of those little hotel ding hey. things. If it goes right, ding. If it goes wrong, honk. Like a bicycle horn type hmm. thing. So with a sort of light short form um, filter over the top of it. So the audience, um, the audience is in control of the ding and the or honk. Or no, it's, it's the so it's like okay, we're going to talk about what was um, what was uh, dinner with your parents like as a kid, and you'll describe that a little bit, and we go okay, we're going to see a little bit of that on stage. And then you will have control of the ding and the honk oh, to make right. it more accurate. Yes. So it's like a slightly more sophisticated version of should have said or new choice or yeah, you know, there's lots of different names for that. So I, I saw the show and it remains one of the best improv shows I've ever seen. And I went back to see it about three or four times and had no idea what it was or that it was called improv or what they were doing. I just thought they were wizards. Um, and then when I was at drama school about... Uh, four years later in 1407 um, <laughs> I'm actually 33 I'm nowhere near this old Stuart's having a good cough because he's got whooping cough oh, you, know, you no longer have whooping cough I no longer have whooping cough that's good news I do have one of these so, uh... it looks like you've got a sort of um, just to describe this for the listeners and I hope this remains in the podcast it looks like um, I don't edit. a sort of um uh, a ray gun from 1960s Star Trek um, <laughs> being used by some rubber-faced monster. Yeah, um, that's how I roll. <laughs> so um, if you're too funny, uh, this is placing pressure now, because if I don't use this, you're going to see it as a criticism. Um, I don't. <laughs> but you're not going to use it. How does it work? Well, This is great radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to uh, do that a couple of times, and then you... Uh, Ah, then you play a little. Uh, you play a little tune, and you get all the harmonica. stuff in the. Uh, yes. Anyway, um, so no. it's like a way of bossing up your inhaler. There's an inhaler yes. fixed on the back of it where the sort of handle would be. Describe so, that properly. I haven't got a hooping cough anymore, but apparently, oh, anyway, 
you know that bit where I said I wasn't really going to talk very much and I was going to make sure it wasn't about me, but hey, guys, I've been ill. (laughs) I'm mainly better now. Mainly better. It does make... An ex of mine had hidden cough when she was a kid, um, which meant that when she... Uh, when she coughed, she would sort of honk like a goose. Right. It was very odd because very sort of very delicate, very feminine, very much uh, a dress wearer. She wasn't a trousers kind of yeah. lady. Um, but when she coughed, she'd kind of go, hum, hum, which was very funny, and I found very cute, and she hated. Well, um, uh, and, and then I was at drama school about four or five years later. Um, I can I can pick this shit up, no problem. I'm allowed to swear. Well. Okay, that's the bit that gets edited. I allow. No, I to- don't edit. I don't edit. Okay. Don't edit. I'll try not to swear. Um, we had uh, it's just because of my children. Oh right! Tell Stuart's kids. Apparently, Stuart's kids love Dutch clapping or Danish clapping. They do. They do. Yes. Told me. On the way to a wedding or something. Uh, uh, <laughs> a wedding. Uh, my daughter Freya, who's twelve, introduced. Now, is it Dutch clapping or is it? it I can't remember which one it actually is now. It's, it's actually Danish clapping, it's but Danish. I think Chris Mead misdescribed it as Dutch clapping, which then allowed him to trace how Dutch clapping had spread across the world by his influence. Because, like when you have a gene mutation and yeah. you can trace it across the world, he was able to trace that by him misnaming it uh, Dutch clapping. Um, uh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, she was uh, had gone to a wedding and um, was teaching everybody that particular warm-up. Um, and uh, it was a big hit, apparently, so... <laughs> That Dutch clapping has now spread to a wedding. Oh, I don't even know where it was. <laughs> I, I guess the start of an improv class is a little bit like a wedding where you don't know anyone. Well, actually, the last thing you want to do um, is have those kind of, so what do you do? Where do you live? Ah, oh, yes, you take the M4 Junction 18. <laughs> like, no one wants to really have those conversations, but you're trying to find the place where you can interact with people, and, and improv work. work warm-ups are designed to just cut past all of that and get to the point of um, let's just play a game together. I would um, enjoy weddings a lot more if I could have a quick game of hep just to kind of warm right. everyone up, you know. Is that, <laughs> is that socially acceptable, I find? Totally I socially acceptable. Socially, I'll, say, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell them that Jules said it was okay. Well, w- weddings and birthdays are weird because you go to a wedding on birthday. When I do, I don't... I probably don't want to make new friends. Not because I don't like people. I love people. But there's a whole bunch of people at that wedding who are presumably there for um, things which... uh, They're there because they're connected with people that you know. So you want to hang out with them and spend time with them. You probably don't want to meet new people at weddings. That's that's my theory on weddings. Don't invite me to weddings. I'm really grumpy at weddings. I love weddings. I always cry at weddings. I hate weddings. Really? Yeah. They're like Ikea. (laughs) <laughs> in what way I think I like them mm. and for about the first half hour it's quite fun but then I know I'm in for a long haul and I'm not going to leave for another three and a half hours <laughs> and usually there's candles involved uh, as in what as in tea you don't lights. Like oh tea lights <laughs> both Ikea and uh, weddings yeah that's true and tea lights are sort of a universal signifier of everyone's having a nice time but then people fiddle up with them in that horrible way mm. um what are we talking about? Talking about eight things we're talking school. about. Oh yeah, oh, it's much less interesting than a wedding. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't think I want to get married, and I don't necessarily see what religion or the state should have anything, yeah, anything to do with my romantic life. But I do cry at every single wedding. Every single wedding that I go to, I just stream tears because I'm soppy. So well, I, I do, I do, just because I've been there for a very long time, and it seems like a very long time before I'm going to leave. <laughs> 
That's the only reason I cry. I'm very fond of Four Weddings and a Funeral. That's a great film. Yeah. It's a really, really good film. It is, un, it's unfairly lumped together with the absolute um, nonsense in his later catalogues. He avoided swearing. <laughs> did, I, did I tell you that during our show this year I decided I didn't want to swear so much when I was teaching? So uh, <laughs> did I tell you that? that? Was, no. Um, How did that work out for you? Well, I, so I thought, okay, so a pound in the bucket, or, or I kept a tally of the number of times that I swore... Um, and was going to give a pound for each one of those in order to disincentivize me. But obviously, if if I choose an organisation like um, Amnesty or Christian Aid or you know a really good charity, I don't care that much about giving them a pound. Uh, yes. So what I decided to do was give a pound for every time I swore to UKIP, Ooh. because I read that I really don't want Ooh. to give that money. Golly, yeah. Um, and it was a genuine incentive. And I only, in four days of teaching, I only swore twenty three times, <laughs> which is very, very good for me. And then I. So I donated that much to UKIP and then twice as much for Amnesty to balance out my conscience. And that pretty much wiped out my teaching rate for that week. Um, well, my policy with swearing is that it's okay, I understand that you know these words, but it's appropriate use of swearing. So, not in front of granny is right. the main rule. And also, you know, words have power. So yes, that's, that's the really important thing, isn't it? Yeah. So don't, you know, don't use it as an adjective. If you stub your toe, if you burn your hand, then that's you know that's that's proper use of swearing. Totally reasonable. They have a different function in your brain, and that part of their function is an explosion of emotion, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting about generations and swearing, though, because you don't. When I was a teenager, you would not swear in front of your parents, of course. Um, but of course, your parents are swearing not in front of the kids. <laughs> so it's like everyone can swear. As long as they were people of a reasonably similar age. Yes. <laughs> age, yeah, age, yeah. Well, not age appropriate, but yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can't yeah. swear intergenerationally. In the same way that you, <laughs> you can't discuss sex intergenerationally. Because I know people of my parents' generation having sex, of course. In people theory. Of my, in, in theory. theory, it must be true. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right here. And I know that people of my generation are having sex, as far as I know. Um, but it's just never a thing you want to discuss together, even if they're not part of your family. Um, I find that odd. It's, uh, it is an odd thing, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, drama school was scared of improv classes, um, so I decided Good. to do more. I'm glad. Oh, um, you did more. Okay. Because, um, uh, yeah, there's a couple of theories about this. Um, and I was talking to uh, Mark Tindall in the last episode, and he was very much for trying things that scared him. <laughs> and mm. I was a bit like, yeah, I kind of see where you're coming from, but I kind of like doing things that don't scare me too. <laughs> but there's a, like a... There's a there's a sort of a bite point I feel where there's the stuff that scares you, and then there's the stuff that gives you an incredibly uh, visceral payoff. Yes. Right. Um, you read that book Flow by Mikhail. Yes. Chick sent me high. Well done. I've never known how to pronounce that. I just committed. Um, That's the secret. Chick just committed. Chick sent me high. What sounded more? It's a Czech name, but he's American. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I think. <laughs> I'm just programmed to say yes. Okay, cool. I have no idea. None of the facts <laughs> in this podcast are true. Yeah, um, don't rely on this podcast for facts. Do your homework. <laughs> um, and no, we're not going to spell it for you. It starts with a C. It's the most important book called Flow. F-L-A-W. Um, and uh, so he talks about how um, with a, in order to maintain that feeling of flow and presence and engagement and activity, something has to be constantly getting harder. Hmm. And that the individual, the consequence of that is the individual being lost in the flow activity 
um, because it's just hard enough to occupy all of your brain so that you can't be self-conscious. Mm. Um, and then the really important thing about the flow, flow state is that you come back the other side, that you've um, the individual re-emerges from the flow state uh, more complex, more rounded, more uh, sophisticated in the area that they have been um, expressing themselves. And I think that's a really interesting thing about uh, improv. At the point where I'm not finding it adrenalizing, uh, I quit. Mm. Like, I really still... I do a lot of shows that I've been doing for a few years and I feel tremendously comfortable doing, but that little adrenalizing buzz and bite at the, before the show and at the start of the show, just as you're finding out how the thing is going to sit. I mean, that's, that's the reason we go back, right? That's, that's the adrenaline sport. That's the jumping out of the plane. That's, um, that's the reason why improv is, I'm pretty sure, physiologically addictive in the same way that skydiving would be because you're getting an incredibly... Um, a huge payoff of uh, natural, of a natural natural high, mm. basically. Um, so yeah, I think the what was Mark? Because Mark has very inter- interactions with his own fear and his own sort of nerve reactions. What was he saying about it? Oh well, he was um, describing himself as a, a journeyman, and he <laughs> wanted to um, be the kind of person. I thought this was. 100% admirable, I think I told him at the time. I'm not quite as brave as he is. Um, but he wanted to do all the styles and learn from all the teachers and do all the classes mm. so that whoever he played with, he would have a kind of an insight into how they played and he would be able to work with them and, you know, do that sort of thing, which I thought was admirable. It was very self-sacrificing as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mark. Um, yes. Um, I wonder if there is and this is probably something to think about in our own time, is there a crossover between the hero's journey and flow? Yeah, I mean, it's the same story, right? Yeah. It's also the same as the... Um, I think it's the same as um, the four stages of learning um, and the change curve, which is all plotted on the same thing as well. Um, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, unconscious competence. Um, it's, all, it's all the same thing folded differently because it's all about revelation and then change and revelation and then change. And... Um, the lovely thing about improv is that you can go through those journeys on such a micro scale. You can go through those journeys with every single exercise yes. and every single night that you take a class and every single um, time that you do a show. Um, you're always engaging with your own self-growth and I find that tremendously inspiring, um, both for my own self and as, as a teacher. And I sort of teach quite a lot now. Um, I find the bravery to walk straight into those things and say, I have no idea how this is going to work. Oh, well, let's do this. Yeah. I, I find it constantly inspiring to watch um, students and people I'm directing and stuff do that and, and to try and do that as best I can myself. Um, yeah, I think it's all the same thing. It's all the same. It's, it's, the, it's the process of learning. I'm sorry, I knocked the table. That's what happened there. I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you don't knock the table, I'm going to worry you're not excited. Um, <laughs> yeah, I haven't made you go on the Hong Kong thing. Right <laughs> I will save that for the end. <laughs> I need a big finish. Um, so you said that um, you were uh, afraid of improv classes, so you did yeah. more of them. Yeah, there was a guy, um, Tai Shanling, who was one of the either founder or very, very early members of the Oxford Imps. And he was <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> last week's episode with Mark is 
just, uh, he's, he's, we made out that he, he saw the Oxford Imps very early on and auditioned for them and failed to get in. So oh, did he? Made out that his entire improv career was a way of getting revenge on them <laughs> to, to take them down. But not the Oxford Imps of now, but the Oxford Imps of 12, 13 years ago. Which would probably have included Ty, actually. <laughs> so um, uh, it's a good job, Mark. You, you bring him down. Um, he's, he's only about five foot tall anyway, so it's not that hard. Um, uh, so he was the year below me at drama school, and we had these regulated um, improv classes on a, on a Friday morning, um, and I just hated the idea of them and didn't know how you dealt with it, and all, would do all the classic beginner things of trying to escape from them, trying to plan, trying to not be noticed, um, going into that um, sort of overdrive... Um, uh, sort of loud bombastic mode all those things um, and then I realised uh, oh this is I don't know how this works at all and that's a really interesting part of my brain so when Ty started uh, having rehearsals on a couple of days a week to start uh, an improv company at the college sort of outside the, the, the formal programme I went along to those just to see what um, to see what was happening in my own brain um, and then that became the impresarios, who I, I don't think exist anymore. Um, and that was how I got into doing things. And that, so that gave me two interesting, uh, two, two things about the way that I come into improv, which I feel incredibly lucky about. Um, number one is that I never, I never went through a class system. And I totally understand, see the necessity of class systems. Um, you have to be able to separate people who've been doing it two weeks with people who've been doing it for a year. And you can't put people together only with people that they like and really get on with. That's not possible. So a class is, to a degree, an accident of the people that came together at that time. Um, and if you're doing a six, eight, ten-week class, then people don't have opt-in and opt-out options. Uh, uh, points, rather. I wish I hadn't used the word opt, or the phrase opt so much um but with us we were just a bunch of people who liked each other enough to come along twice a week to just do things for their own intrinsic value and then because there was no school structure above us teaching us improv we were just doing it off our own backs not even in any interaction with um with ken ray who was the guy who taught the improv as part of the formal program uh, we didn't do our first gig in front of an audience for, I think, almost 15 months wow. from when we started doing it. So rehearsing twice a week yeah. for that length of time before you even get on stage to do a gig. And it was short form as well. So it's a very sort of yeah. um, safe and, and, and nurtured and, and looked after environment. It, I, I feel so lucky that I had that process because I think what, if you start getting in front of an audience... Um, after two, three, four months, which is totally possible, get on to jam nights. There's huge benefits to that as well. There's also huge, uh, huge dangers in getting stuck in thought and performance habits, which then become really hard to break later because they've been reinforced by uh, someone laughing or what your um, what you end up doing as an immediate response to the pressure of. Um, an open form jam or a long form jam or something. I did, yeah, so that was that was the shape of that. And then I um, left the impresarios and I joined Music Box and then the Maydays and then uh, around about the same time the nursery was kind of starting and then that went all into all the other side projects and oddities that I do as well. Cool. I want to talk about that as well. But can we just go back to the dangers of 
um, you know, what you said about performing, um, potential pitfalls of performing mm. too soon. Because um, I think this is really interesting. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this and how um, doing classes are great, and being in a group is great, but until you actually perform, that's kind of the other part of the puzzle. It absolutely is. And I am not endorsing never getting on. Well, no, actually, if you don't want to get on stage, absolutely fair enough. I'm not saying that the way I did it is the best way to do it, because after all, it was by accident. I'm just saying that there are there's cause and effect to each of the two things, mm. I guess. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, um, particularly if you go on stage and perform short form, uh, short form feels weird if it isn't funny. Um, it's sort of it's sort of rigged to be funny. That's part of the point of it, and the structure of the game is force funny onto you. Um, so you start to become an addict chasing the laugh, and laughs are great. And if anyone says, "Oh, in improv, it's so easy to make people laugh. I, why can't you make them cry?" Then that person can go fuck themselves because um, it's absolutely incredibly valuable to bring all the other emotions into improv as well. Um, but it is not easy to make people laugh. It is a lifetime's work and a fascination to make people laugh. And the weird thing Um, is, the harder you try to make them laugh, the less they seem to laugh. Right, absolutely, yeah. Why? Um, Why is that? Why is the universe so unfair? I'm trying really hard here. It's getting unfunnier. It's probably because of the word try. Yeah. Right? It's probably because, actually, you don't want to try anything. You just want to be stuff. (laughs) Do or do not. There is no try. Exactly. Is that Yoda? That's Yoda. That's Yoda, isn't it? I always want. Down close or Yoda, I can't get the two confused. <laughs> Treat each other as artists, geniuses, and poets, and they have a best chance that you will become so. So, Del close or Yoda, I can't, can't quite. Oh, I went, might have been Violet Bowen. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't sound like Violet Bowen. Um, what are we talking about? Yeah, the danger of getting on stage too early. It just, I don't. I'm sure if you examined it in a really careful way. Um, you could find specific traits that are statistically significant. People get on stage early. But having not done that, I'm just talking about um, if you do something in your first company which works. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, you have a thing which that company does which works and you've got on stage and there's an audience looking at you and we all know how how much adrenaline that gives. Um, then you do the thing that works and then when you go back and do it again, you do the same thing again. You might well have the same reaction, have the same reaction. And you can end up limiting yourself simply by virtue of that being the thing which has worked for you in the past right, and having yes. a kind of Pavlovian reinforcement pattern. Yes. Um, I'd like to have one of those things. <laughs> we don't just have one. This <laughs> is so you can fall back on it. <laughs> but but you've, done the, you've done the other thing. I feel like you've performed in front of audiences very little for the amount of time that you've been improvising. So, the, but again, cause and effect, no, no better, no worse. I suspect the consequence for you would be you get together with a bunch of people and say, we're going to do some gigs. What are we going to do? I don't know. Here's 18 options. Right. Here's all the things that I've learned. Here's all the different yes. things that I'm excited by. At some point, you have to make a choice and define what the show is. Yes. Um, or you don't, in which case everyone has to be great at jumping on board with the star, which has been proposed by the first move of the first scene, which is really hard. Um, and, uh, which is still valuable and wonderful and interesting to do. Like, yeah. But, uh, who knows? Who knows what that's all about? Um, yes, in episode two, Steve and Christelle and I uh, discuss what we're going to do uh, at the launch pad. Um, 
We're basically copying a motion play. Okay. Are you going to record it and then disperse episode, like, bits of the scenes into the podcast? Or have, I you, don't... have you already put it online? Um, what the... What the, the if you record your little the, the, the little ten minutes that you're doing, yeah. then you could put chunks of those scenes into the into the podcast. Yeah, I don't know how I f- no, I do know how I feel about recorded podcasts. Oh, I'm just going to. That's right. Is it right? Should I take the vacuum for you? No, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, I think it's in the other room actually. Is it in that, yeah. Thank you. Sorry. We're in the NTC, um, so <laughs> that was the vacuum cleaner being used <laughs> by the uh, costume department of the touring. Production of Rocky Horror Picture Show. They have a lot of glitter. They have a lot of glitter and a lot of, um, what are they called? Scarves that are less weighty. Pashminas? Uh, no, like the. I'm the wrong person to ask. Like, uh, I can't remember the word. Anyway, I have to stop myself from trying them on. <laughs> but so, I'm, I, have quite, um, I have quite heavy features and this has led over the years quite a, a ridiculous number of people to ask me. Um, if they can put makeup on me, <laughs> um, seemingly always expecting me to say no, <laughs> but I always say yes because it seems to give people great joy to put eyeliner on someone who looks like me. Well, so, I mean, I am hoping that once this goes out, sure. you're going to get <laughs> well, inundated I, with people. I'm happy. To, I'm happy to send you the <laughs> links to the things. Oh, it's here. Isn't it? well, there is the Hoover right here. Right, uh, right yes, but it's here. Sorry. It's, it wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going daft. <laughs> Thanks. No worries. Um, no, I was um, talking. Um, I was saying that I didn't know what I felt about recorded improv, but I do know what I think about recorded improv, and I'm not sure recorded improv works. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right. Because if I if something's <clears> recorded, <throat> um, I this is not to criticise anybody that is doing this, obviously. Um, I kind of I want it's it's the joy of being there and seeing it created in the moment. Yeah, and it's like wow, this is amazing that people are able to get up on stage and just make stuff up um, at all is amazing. Um, but then if it's recorded, I don't know. I kind of almost want some editing. It's like I don't know. Yeah, if it's recorded, why wouldn't you take advantage of the? If improv is taking advantage of the liveness of its medium um, by not planning anything and having the audience discover at the same time as the cast then why wouldn't uh, either a podcast or a um, something recorded for TV or, or web series or whatever why wouldn't you take advantage of that medium hmm. it, it, I, I always feel like recorded improv nearly always feels like a record of an event rather mm. than the event itself yes. to me, which still has a huge value to it and I record a lot of stuff and yes. we put a bunch of stuff online from the Edric and, and from the nursery um uh, nursery shows we have there but it always is just yeah you're a little little removed from it aren't you yeah um, I mean I uh, quite obsessively rec- audio record anything I'm in not classes but <laughs> there will be some use to that but um, uh, the, but um, you know if, if I'm doing a show or something like that I will record it um, partly it's because if I'm part of it I don't really know what happened mm. Absolutely. Um, and I'm really interested to know what happens. Um, because there's the whole, you know, it's. I like to think of myself as a swan. A swan gliding across the surface, <laughs> and they don't know what's going on underneath. Mm. Um, and also, it's the timing thing, because when you're on stage and it's, you know, 
10 seconds seems like a minute and you know so it's very interesting that the distant back goes oh that bit where I thought that nothing happened for like 10 minutes was just you know <laughs> fairly noticeable was totally fine yeah, yeah. I think um, I do I watch myself on film quite a lot mostly with mostly as a tool for awareness yes um, it's not necessarily like you can even define what it is you're becoming aware of um, but as you watch it you you become aware of what you do more yes which means you can be more accurate with what you do on stage the next time like I said about it's not better it's not worse it's just different it's just causality oh I do this which looks like this I do this which looks like this mm. um, and the more you can be aware of um, what you're doing on stage obviously the more flexible and the better you're going to be as long as you don't become self-conscious but mm. um, I'm, I'm lucky that I, th- I think I'm mostly past being too self-conscious in most situations I think most, <laughs> most on-stage situations <laughs> social situations God knows um, <laughs> um, yeah and it's, it's one of those uh, the advice things if you're teaching as well is to be filmed while teaching because oh, God, I've never done that that sounds horrible um, have, you, have you done that? yeah what's it like? Um, <laughs> I quite liked it. Uh, <laughs> um, well, only because okay. So I'm very sensitive to um, this. Is generally people I work with, not necessarily at the moment, but in general, uh, people who have the same phrases that they use again and again and mm. again, and it can wind me up. And I'm thinking, well, am I doing the same thing? Do I have the same phrases? And I don't think I do. And I watched a video, and I didn't. So that was a really reassuring. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did quite enjoy it. <laughs> you quite enjoyed the fact that you weren't repeating yourself. Yes. There's small mercies, I suppose. Isn't it? <laughs> it's just like, oh, you know, no, that was fine. That, no, that really bugs me as well. Oh, I used to work in a printer's, or I used to, went in my uh, year up to in school and university. Um, I worked in Pronto Print, Canterbury. Um, and we had... Uh, <laughs> Hello to all our listeners from Pronto Printed. <laughs> exactly. I can't even say it. It's probably not there anymore. It's, it? it's not there anymore, I don't think. <laughs> no, the, guy, the guy who ran it was um, this tiny little guy... Um, who would occasionally take days off work to go and dress in one of those sort of huge costumes as some cartoon character and hand stuff out for kids. It's this weird status shift where he was my boss and he was definitely like our boss boss. And then he'd go off and just like hand out cuddly toys in Margate or something for a day and then come so back. what happens in Margate? A, yeah, it is what, well, nothing s- happens. That and stabbings. Um, hello to our listeners in Margate. Um, <laughs> There won't, there won't be any. There won't be any. <laughs> I once went to uh, Quasar, Quasar Laser Squad yep. in Margate, but it was really confusing because it was underground and there were disco lights and they were playing the levellers really loudly and I was like, well, how is this different from being in a club? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to shoot each other, which yeah. is, you know, what people in Margate would do if they could get the hardware. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's... I'm from rural Kent, I'm allowed to say this stuff. I had a friend who... Uh, once went hand to hand because he'd run out of ammo. <laughs> I don't realise you had ammo in Quasar. I'm pretty sure you must have. Don't you have to recharge? Oh yeah, because you do, and then you have to shoot like somewhere else on yourself to kind of recharge the um, the chamber on the gun, don't you? I don't know. It's it's over a decade since I went to Quasar. Now I want to do it. <laughs> paintballing is really fun. I went paintballing from a friend of mine, Stag Do. If you years ago and I've only I've been paintballing a few times 
Have you not learnt a lesson from Biker Grove? What, what happened to Biker Grove? Oh, did you get hit in the eye? Yeah, right? got blinded. <laughs> you got blinded? Yeah, doing paintball. That's why you have to wear your goggles. That is true. That, that is, is, that that is, is the important. message, kids. If you're wear, doing paintball, then wear the, your goggles. Wear your goggles. <laughs> um, and it's finished by the two teams, so we'd all been determined who won, who'd lost. And the two teams lined up facing each other. And the last game was just shoot the other team with all the paintballs you have left. <laughs> Until they turn up, and when they, when, when they, um, as the guy phrased it, and I'm very uncomfortable with the gendering around this, but I'm just relaying what he said. When the other people pussy out and leave the line, it's like the last person standing, having paintball shot at them. And I did all right, but it wasn't my favourite part of the day. Oh, that just seems like a way of making sure everyone just uses up their paint at the end. Exactly, of the day. exactly. It's just capitalism in action, isn't it? Now, I've got a friend that runs a paintball place uh, near Guildford. And uh, hi, Ivan. Um, and hi, Ivan. Uh, he does. Um, they're all quite complicated, um, sort of strategic stories that they have to play oh, out. That's cool. But he's a role player, and so it's kind of feeding from that into the paintball thing. So uh. I've never understood why there was no, why there aren't paintball courses on the back of quad bikes. <laughs> because, because it would be obscenely dangerous. Yeah, but how cool would that be? <laughs> And then one person, only one person, gets to like helicopter in <laughs> with a, a paintball gun in each hand. I don't even like action movies, and I'd love that. Imagine the market, <laughs> copyright. You're not going to give that away with I'm not creative comments. You're keeping no, that for yourself. That's mine. You, what you give out, you take back. <laughs> paintball on quad bikes is mine. You can't have it. <laughs> if I, maybe just paintball while you're paragliding. Is that dangerous? I've never been paragliding. I imagine paragliding itself is quite dangerous. Yeah, I should think it probably is. My uncle does it, but I never really talked to him about it. Good story, Jules. <laughs> um, so, uh, you join Music Box next. Mm-hmm. How is Music Box, obviously? Um, this is going to take about five hours if we go through <laughs> I hope you don't want the entire thing. Um, uh, music Box was great. It was um, the first improvised song I ever did was at my audition for Music Box because I decided to basically treat it as a, a three or four hour workshop on improvised music and nice. then when they phoned me up the next day and said yeah you can join I, I thought they'd made a mistake <laughs> um, but it was a sort of it was a lovely lovely point in the old days of Hoopla when all the people who are now running classes and running teams and doing these amazing things were all in either 8-bit or Music Box, and a lot of 8-bit were in Music Box as well. So at the time, the team was um, uh, Steve, George, uh, Beck and Marriott, uh, uh, Katie Shute, Rihanna Vivian, John Monkhouse. I'm definitely going to forget somewhat, someone that's really offensive to forget. But it was a sort of... Um, it was a real... Uh, forging ground for working with those people who I've then gone on to do a whole bunch of other stuff um, for me personally and also for all the other projects that they've kind of shot off into doing in various points well, and of course and James Witt still doing stuff in Music Box um, but yeah that was, that was really learning on the job because I don't I'm not a musician I'm not a singer um, and it's one of the reasons why I like teaching musical improv so much because I can say look I'm not a musician I'm not a singer but I can get you through this without having a panic attack um, which I think is a valid thing in a yes, improv music yes, class. Yes, it is, yes. Um, We've talked about the music uh, course that you taught uh, Stephen and Mark and I on previous episodes. Oh, really? 
Yeah, have yet to come out yet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was all the same, the same course, wasn't it? And, and uh, Jonah as well. Yes. And 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 Piotr. That was a lovely course. Fran, that was fun. Yeah, all these people all who these none people. of you know. So yes. it's fine. They're all very nice. Um, uh, yeah, so that was really learning on the job, and uh, it was only a very short amount of time between starting to do those gigs and ending up doing a full Edinburgh run, <laughs> which was sort of. Um, it's a little bit the same as the impresario's experience of haven't really had any formal training, ended up here, hope everything's going to be okay. Are we going to be all right? We're going to be all right. And it, it wasn't until I, um, uh, later on, I did some stuff with Remy Bertrand and uh, Friendly Fire, as it was then, um, and then later John Creamer, who I'd met doing Slapdash for a couple of years, um, said, come with us for the Maydays. Um, having at that point, I don't think, ever seen me improvise. Um, I just, I think he was feeling that the women were outnumbering the men in the Maydays. Um, and he needed some sort of support against... Little little knowing that I would take their side consistently through the entirety of my time at the Maydays. Um, uh, so come on audition for the Maydays, and that was the point where I started to get more of a, a consistent idea of what... Chicago-style long-form, if we want to call it, that is, and a more of a, a, a clear grounding more of a rounded picture of what that is versus the um the contingent how to make this show work of a short form show or a narrative musical which are both very um what's the word formatted and describes mm. kind of units um and then chicago long formers ends up being kind of whatever you wanted want it to be um right uh which is yeah very interesting thing I've been with the Maydays ever since, which has then led to 10,000 Million Love Stories and Sitting in a Tin Can and um, uh, all the other shows that I've done in that kind of four or five years since that happened. God, it's been ages, isn't it? I never stopped to think about it and I think, shit, I've been doing this for eight years. Probably longer than that. Wow. This is going to take ages. <laughs> well, I sped through the last little bit there because it's probably not that interesting. To do, <laughs> well, also, I am aware that you've got a class to teach fairly soon. Oh, yeah, we have to do that. Yeah, we should probably. Um, unfortunately, I can't tell what time it is because we're recording this on my phone. Oh, but... I, oh my phone's over there. I can have a look. <laughs> Shall I have a look? <laughs> tell you exactly. It is. I won't tell people the date because that's important. Uh, it's 29 minutes past six. Okay. On Wednesday, the 2nd of December 2015. It's very important the who, what, where. Uh, but I think once you're 45 minutes into a scene, that's okay. So it's right to start establishing it then. Which means it's either three or four years since Lenny Kravitz wore that enormous scarf. Do you remember that? No. He had this huge scarf that looks like it's been photoshopped on. I'll find you the picture. <laughs> and that was on the 2nd of December. Good. <laughs> we should probably talk about the nursery. Oh, yeah, that. Um, yeah, do you want to know? www.thenurserytheatre.com it's all there we do classes we do shows pretty bothered talking about that to be honest <laughs> um, then, uh, do you want history do you want ideology what would you like me to say I would like ideology please I'm just going to uh... oh i just play the harmonica um, ideology uh, I think we're at a very interesting point with improv in London at the moment because um, the different schools and different uh, well organisations because I suppose financially they're primarily schools but also do performances everyone's defining what they do in relationship to each other yes um, and I think 
where we want the nursery to sit is on the theatrical end of things because both Judith and I, who run the nursery, come from a theatrical background, both did acting training. Um, and I always get very uncomfortable around the description improvised comedy, <laughs> not because I don't think it should be funny, um, see previous conversation, uh, but I think the word comedy leads you into sketch and stand-up and changes an audience's expectations. Yes. And I love sketch and stand-up. I just don't know how people do them. No, I don't know how to do them it's either. Like, why, how, why would you... That sounds like a horrible thing to do with your time. It's lovely to watch. Yeah. I'm really glad people do it. Like, yeah. Much like American football. I'm glad you're doing it so I can watch you. <laughs> but it looks really horrible. Yeah. Um, I would like someone to ex- explain explain how it works. <laughs> it's sort of, if someone just explained it, I'd go... Oh, American so, football or stand up and sketch? Stand up and sketch. Okay, there's a lot of sporting analogies in this podcast. Yeah, well, I think sporting analogies are really, really <laughs> telling. Like, I think what we do is a lot of improvisers are the people who got picked last at sports, right? Um, <laughs> I'm holding up my hand here, <laughs> and I actually kind of wasn't. Like, I wasn't an amazing sportsman, but I was okay. I was fine. <laughs> um, uh, I played a bit of rugby. I did martial arts for years. I'm reasonably physically aware, and actually, I think the um, the bonding and the connection between groups of people that you get from sport combined with the sort of the flow analogy. The easiest way to explain flow is always through sport. It's always through sport that you kind of get lost in the activity of doing a sport and then you come back out of it afterwards and your muscles are um, tired, but then the next day they'll be better. Like that's the easiest way of explaining flow to my mind. Um, I was talking about this. And yeah, I think that a lot of, a lot of improvisers seek in improv that which is was not available to them or which they decided not to have from something like a sports team. Right. It's the I've yes. got your back thing. It's the camaraderie thing. It's the can we do this together thing. It's having a collective goal yes. rather than um, just doing something for yourself. And there are other analogies. I mean, you can... I don't think the cult analogy is a joke either. I think there's a huge amount of... Um, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I think there's a huge amount of value in the collective activities that you get from a church or a cult or that kind of organisation. Mm. And I think um, improv can serve a lot of those roles without necessitating any beliefs which I might be careful what I would say about. Yes, I mean, we don't want to alienate any of our cultist listeners. Yeah, and we're exactly. a very broad church and we're not even a church and apologies to the Scientologists that I offended earlier I mean you're all mad I mean I hope that they heard your comments at the beginning of the podcast thought let's just listen to the next 50 minutes to see whether he recounts (laughs) because you know he he might he might change his mind 50 minutes in um yes and um I mean I'm aware of the word cult but um Mm. it's uh it is a shared um way of looking at life and it's a shared mm. vocabulary and um you know it's it's the, the things that you do um in improv um you know are the transferable skills to real life and and uh, further than that the your, your progress as an improviser and the application of those skills to your real life i, I think they're pretty much exactly mapped you can't get better at one thing without getting better at the other thing. Uh, right? Because I, I feel that um, it is perfectly possible to be really good at acting and mad. <laughs> like, completely terrifying whack job. But I think the process of improvising, because it's essentially cooperative, because it's essentially united, 
um, forces changes on the way that your brain works and forces you to be better at the things which will make life easier for you. So the two things, it's not just that it's one thing and it's the, and the other, it's those two things are inherently absolutely 100% linked. You can't get better at improv without becoming a better person. Sure, I'm going to sweep and generalize like that, <laughs> but I'm comfortable with it. I'm fine with that. Um, I think that's a really lovely and inspiring thought because um, therapy and self-work are mostly not that much fun but improv is. <laughs> so might as well choose this one because it's cheaper um, and you get to laugh most of the way through. Although it's so good uh, for therapy at all, but yeah. Um. Well, I think on... It does seem that... Well, it's not every episode that I've done. Um, but some episodes, uh, we end on that, that self-help note. Um, <laughs> I will say that I used to have um, anxiety dreams about being on stage and not knowing the lines from a script. Mm -hmm. uh, I now no longer have those treats because I have the improvisational tools to make something up. So. Have, you, have you never had the anxiety dream where you're on stage in an improv show and you still don't know the lines and you explain to people, but it's an improv show. And I, yeah, but, but what are your lines? But, but it's an improv show. You, there aren't any lines, but you still need to know your lines. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. <coughs> that was Barcelona 2014. That was very unpleasant. I've not had that. <clears throat> I've not had that dream. But this morning, I did dream about doing this interview, and <laughs> but then thank you. I guess <laughs> I, I don't know what to say in response to that. And <clears throat> but then I woke up a bit because I'm going to do the class afterwards. So in my dream, in the next level up, I had done <laughs> this interview, but I hadn't done the class. So in that bit of dream that I was in, I was then really worried because there was a gap in my memory of what had happened after we'd done the interview. <laughs> and then when I woke up, I was really relieved that it was just different levels of dream and that I wasn't a gap in my memory. I was really panicky. It's like, what did I do after the interview with Jules? Something must have happened. There's a gap in my memory. Oh, no, I was just asleep. It was just a dream. So you, you... almost had a panic dream about panic dreams. Yes. Like, it's almost like a meta-panic dream. Yes. It's amazing how the brain will keep Oh, I was about to swear again. We'll keep messing you up. No matter how much you break the cycle, it'll still find a way of fucking you up. I'm just going to say it. It's fine. If you got this far, Stuart's kids, if you got 53 minutes into a podcast about improv, which I don't think they do, do they? They just hear you talking about it. Then I respect you enough to swear. Fuck bollocks shit. There it is. I think... On, on that moment. I think on that moment. Can I, can I tell you, just because it's on the, the, the ending thing, the last, um, I did something like 50 or 60 shows in Edinburgh this year, all of them improvised, and the last line of the last show, which was a Maydays Presents show, Maydays and Friends show, um, uh, which we did like on Armando, so we're telling stories and then doing scenes from them, and the last line of the last show was, I hate improv, blackout. <laughs> 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 Which I found delightful. <laughs> I hate improv. I hate improv. Oh yeah, here, here comes the noise. Ah, that is better. <laughs> I made this. That's improv. 